if I do things just for myself, I do a crappy job. I don't seem to like myself very much. I don't care about my experience. And so I just do the bare minimum. I think most people are kind of in the same boat. And yet it's really nice to have really nice tools, like to be able to feel good about the tools that you're using. It's like, you know, driving a, a janky go-kart that you've made yourself versus a nice Ferrari. And it's not worth it to build a Ferrari just for yourself. So it, it's not worth it to make something like Visited just for my own use case. But if I take the mentality that, no, I'm gonna do it for other people, I'm gonna do it once and for all, like this is my gift to the world, then I'm more motivated to do it well, and then I do do it well, and then I benefit from it too, because I get to have that tool and have it be a nice thing. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Welcome back, friends. This is the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the software world. We have a great Maintainer Spotlight episode for you today. Saul Ponson is the creator and maintainer of VisiData, a terminal interface for exploring and arranging tabular data. Saul joined me for a wide-ranging discussion. We talk crossword puzzles, we talk biographs, and of course, we talk about Saul's open-source gift to the world, Maintainer Spotlight is produced in partnership with our friends at Tidelift. Check them out at Tidelift.com. Okay, let's do the thing. First, let me give a shout out to AJ in our community Slack for pointing us towards Saul and Busy Data. AJ wrote to me and said, Saul and Busy Data, he said, a super cool tool that I'm apparently way too late to discover and a really nice guy to boot. So thanks to AJ for the suggestion. Also a quick request for the listeners, if you have an open source software maintainer in your life that deserves the spotlight, please do let us know. You can hop in our Slack and chat me up there. It's free to join at changelog.com slash community, or you can simply submit an episode request at changelog.com slash request and mention our maintainer spotlight series. Okay, with that said, Saul, thanks so much for coming on Maintainer Spotlight. For sure. Thank you for having me. Well, I am very excited. We're here to talk about VisiData. VisiData is an interactive multi-tool for tabular data. It combines the clarity of a spreadsheet, the efficiency of the terminal, and the power of Python into a lightweight utility, which can handle millions of rows with ease. How'd I do reading that marketing copy? Oh, uh, that's actually, that's great. I, it's, <laughs> it's always very interesting to hear somebody else say those words. I think it's actually one of the best um, summaries that I managed to come up with, but it doesn't actually, it, it's kind of a, a mouthful, right? It is. Well, that's the thing with software. Sometimes like you have to present what it is and what it does so that people know like what value that thing brings. And that can actually be a real challenging thing. I think a lot of times for us, especially software developers, not so good at describing things in prose. Uh, that being said, it does the job. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, well, you know, I actually have been thinking a lot over the past couple of years, well, decade really, but a couple of years about marketing. And as an engineer, I really don't like marketing. It feels kind of icky and gross. Like I should yeah. be able to make something that's awesome and that should be sufficient, right? And the more that I'm, I mean, the older that I get and the more that I see how the world works, it's not just a necessary evil. It's actually like, um, it's just a necessary. 
And so I've been thinking of it recently in terms of packaging for humans. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't really, you, you do release software without packaging, but the best software packages do have actual packages where you release them to whatever ecosystem, right. or you a Windows installer or whatever. And marketing is kind of the packaging, but for brains. And, you know, if you want it to um, become not just adopted, but spread, even if you have a great thing, if it's not packaged well in the mimetic sense, then people themselves aren't going to spread it, even if they love it. That's the thing I actually realized recently that's been kind of a little bit mind-blowing for me mm. is that um, it's not just that they have to love it. They have to love it and have something to repeat. If there's not something to actually repeat that they feel confident about or that will lodge in somebody else's brain, they kind of just won't. Or they'll try kind of half-heartedly right. and then it won't lodge and then it just gets stuck right there. It's kind of like if you've ever seen a movie or read a book that you really appreciated and then you turn around and try to tell somebody else about it. And because you can't exactly describe what, what you liked about it or why it was great, you become like a really bad chill, basically. Like as a salesperson, you're like, eh, you should just go see it. Trust me. And they're like, well, I have a lot of movie options. I might not trust you. Yeah. So yeah, if you can like give somebody a, a phrase to say and then they can just use that phrase to describe your thing, you enable them to help you. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, so those 30 words that, you know, that I have on the front page that I feel like describe it, they're a really good description, but not a really good marketing package. And so I'm actually working on the better marketing packages. And mm. it's a, like you said, it's a constant challenge. Do you have any betas you want to you want to test right here with me? You can give me a couple of phrases. And I'll tell you if they're any good. Yeah, I've got a handful. Um, they're more conceptual than, well, some of them are phrases, some of them are conceptual. So okay. um, one of the concepts I think is probably the, the strongest one is duct tape. Um, like duct tape for data. Right. I feel like um, there's a, you know, Visidata itself, if you think about any one thing that it does, it doesn't, I mean, sure, it's fine. It's a CSV viewer or an editor it's or whatever. Fine. You can kind of pick any one of those things, but it's not about that. It's about, you know, if you have this one tool and all of a sudden you've got all this potential and it's like duct tape isn't anything really special except for, well, it, it's so sturdy and um, universal and universally useful that you can kind of slap it on anywhere and get something going when all you need is a little bit of, you know, glue. And the same right. thing is true of duct tape, I'm sorry, of Visidata, where, you know, you come in the one end, you wind up with a pile of JSON maybe, but you need a little bit of CSD out the other end and it's got to be just a little bit different and it fits in really great there. Yeah. And so duct tape is one of the things I've been playing with as a meme. I think duct tape's a great metaphor for software, especially software that does uh, what Visidata does. Uh, so I think that's on point. You should definitely... Uh, you know, start to work that into the messaging around Visidata. Before we get too deep into the project, I want to talk a little bit about something else that you're enthusiastic about. And it seems like I'm I'm seeing it a little bit in your your interest in packaging and words is that you're a self-professed crossword enthusiast. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what is it about crosswords that gets you going? What do you like about them? I like the density of... Uh, Informa not just information. It's like there's a whole lot going on there, right? Like you read a book and you kind of have to go through the words one at a time and turn the page and it's a, it's a bigger thing. Whereas one single crossword puzzle can keep you, you know, I'll use the word entertained yeah. for hours, right? It's just this little puzzle. And like, it's just such a tight little format. Every word, in fact, every character is mm. carefully chosen and, um, and, and meaningful, right? Sometimes, you know, a single, if it's a capital letter versus a lowercase letter, that might change the entire meaning of a clue. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I like the, the fact that it's a really dense puzzle that you can kind of like noodle over for a while. And I also think that there's a lot of, you know, people think of crosswords as kind of like a throwaway thing. Mm -hmm. And this is actually something that I, I've wanted to say in public for a while that I don't think I've had a chance to yet, which is that the Library of Congress actually classifies crosswords as do not collect. 
crossword monographs. Hmm. And it's, I think that's probably a throwback. Like crossword's been around for about, you know, about a hundred years. And um, for the first, I don't know, 30 or 40 years or so, maybe even longer, there was kind of like lists of definitions and just kind of like were, and anyway, you can kind of see how the Library of Congress getting like an unfilled crossword book. Well, first of all, it might get filled. That makes, you know, a, a solved crossword is useless or worthless, right? Um, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. But then Library of Congress marks them as do not collect. And that's one of the very few things that are marked as do not collect. Like they'll even take like one off weird, like alien conspiracy theory books as collect one or collect two of those. And so crosswords are this weird thing. It was like this trivial uh, thing that nobody kind of cares about. And yet it's a really great cross section of culture. Like you, you can really learn a lot about culture by what it's not just by what's in there, but what is presumed to be cultural knowledge, right? Mm. Like the fact that this person is famous enough. Like they assume you can figure this out. They assume you know this. Yeah, exactly. They assume you know this. So let me just say I'm a I'm a crossword neophyte. Like I, I've done a few. Uh, I enjoy puzzle games, and so I've enjoyed crossword puzzles. I never got deep into them, and I've just recently learned probably through the power of podcasting a little bit, reading uh, the story I want you to tell about Gridgate, but. There's like this whole creation side of it. So like I, I think of a crossword puzzle like it just kind of existed and I just do it, right? But like there's a person that created that crossword puzzle and there's like this depth of creation where like there's themes and there's like fillers and there's like all this side which most of us never even consider. And so I, looking mm -hmm. at it from a creator's standpoint is you say it's like a – a window a little bit into like cultural, maybe like the zeitgeist, because as a creator, mm -hmm. you assume that I can figure out this thing based on these clues. And so there's like a cultural connection between you and I, maybe you can't, and that's when you fail at the crossword. But if, if it's, if it's answerable, this particular clue is going to lead me to something that I already know about. Right. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And the, that you know about, or that you um, kind of know deep in the recesses of your brain. That happens to me quite frequently where it's like, I have no idea what they're talking about. And then I get a few more letters and it's like, oh, I do remember that. You're totally right. And then the other thing is um, the, the most, the, the crosswords that I have had the best time with are the ones where they actually teach me something where I get through it and I'll fill in the last letters. I'm like, oh, I see. You're totally right. You know, that clue, it, maybe it's you know, a word that I already knew. I had no idea what the clue how the clue would have gotten me to that answer. But now that I see the answer and associate with the clue, it's like, oh, well, thank you. You actually gave me a huh. new tidbit of information there. That is cool. So so tell us about Gridgate. So there's there's another thing that I didn't even think about, which you can plagiarize. You can plagiarize crosswords. Of course, if it's your job. A lot of people have so a job actually, to do that, right? Like I create the Sunday morning crossword for the New York Times. So that's like the famous one. But for like all these local papers, they have crossword yeah. creators, right? And so there's plagiarism that happens. Well, so um, I didn't know any about this stuff until I got into creating crosswords myself. And that was actually what got me into it. Um, I had a manager that I really liked and he was leaving the job that I was working at. And as a going away president, I decided I was going to make, we do the the New York Times crossword puzzle every day, put it on the kitchen, you know, table mm -hmm. at work, the kitchen thing. And then we kind of, I liked it because we did it kind of as a group. You know, we all take a break every once in a while, go up yeah. a couple of answers and then go back to work. Um, and so when he was leaving, I decided as a little surprise gift, I was going to make a crossword for him that was all about our workplace. And then we were going to, we actually cut out the New York Times crossword for that day and pasted it in there so he didn't even know. He was just doing the New York Times crossword puzzle except for it was the one that I had created mm. from that. And it wasn't a very good crossword or anything like that, but it was one of the central uh, answer was a, a phrase of his that I can't repeat on this show. <laughs> um, and 
uh, it was actually super cute. And of course, our imaginations will have to fill in that blank. <laughs> and so when he uh, when he got to there, of course, it was you know very nice. And but having done that once, then I kind of realized, oh, this is super fun. I, I as I was saying, I I came to say that um, it's like just the right level of frustration to make a crossword. Like it's actually difficult to get everything to kind of line right. up in just the right way. There's I could imagine I've never done it, but I could imagine it's it's challenging and frustrating to a degree, but probably satisfying when you get it figured out. Very much so, yeah. And it requires a level of creativity that it's it's not just, um, you know, slapping some things together. It's, it's kind of a deep art form. And so as I like, I subscribe to the uh, crossword, crossword creators list uh, that's been going on for many years and started listening to them. And the more that I listen to them, the more it's like, no, this is a, uh, this is an art form. This is um, something that we, they pay attention to every little detail like that. You know, my slap together crossword that I did in a couple of hours isn't, isn't going to cut it no matter right. Um, matter what I do to it. And so then as I got deeper into it, I made a couple more crosswords and then somebody actually even said something about, um, you know, have you tried thought about submitting to the New York times? And as I like looked into that, I got like a crossword constructors guide and it's like, Oh wow, I am nowhere near that level. (laughs) How would I get better at that? It goes deep, doesn't it? Right. It totally does. And, um, so yeah, so I decided to collect some crossword data and, you know, I must, data nerd. So I scraped a couple of websites and got a bunch of crosswords. And then just, I, I gave a talk on this last year at CSV conf. And I think it uh, captures it pretty well, but um, yeah, it was kind of, it was almost accidental. I was just kind of looking for generic patterns in grid fill to see like, you know, if, if S's were more common in this corner or that corner, or if any corners were at duplicates. And then it just turned out that a lot of puzzles were actually duplicated um, in whole or in part. And then, like I said, I didn't know anything about the crossword industry at that point. You said this thing about how there are people who make the crossword every day. And actually, it turns out that's not how it goes. There's an editor for the crossword page. Okay. So like Will Shorts does the New York Times. And um, then there's a lot of famous crossword editors, really famous in the community right. where crossword editors. But they solicit crosswords from the community, basically. Mm. They pay a couple hundred bucks for the better ones, and for the better papers, for each crossword. And so... There's, you know, there's a byline. They just select the ones they want to use. Absolutely. And they edit them and make sure they're all, uh, everything's gotcha. all nice and tight and properly everything. But yeah, I don't think Will Shorts has actually made his own crossword, at least for the New York Times, in quite a long time. Seems like an easy job. He just looks at all the ones that come in and he's like, this one looks awesome. I'm going to just print that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure exactly. it's I'm sure it's that easy. That's how I would do it if I was Will. Well, but then you know it's interesting. Just like any editor, he's got to have his finger on the pulse of the totally. guys too, mm-hmm. right? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? And he's actually been taken to task um, recently for not having very many women constructors. Mm-hmm. You know, ideally in, in our progressive society, fifty percent of the puzzles that get published should be by women, and they're nowhere near that. And so he's caught some flack for that, and for some of the. Um, answers and clues and stuff like that are in the puzzles yeah. too it's interesting to see what winds up getting people up in arms over it. And he's like what that seems fine and it's like well i'm sorry will you're now of a different generation mm-hmm. and the current generation doesn't think that's okay mm. you know so just like any editor i think he's got to pay attention to that kind of For stuff sure. any crossword editor has to do the same kind of thing so it's it's a challenging job from an artistic standpoint from a an audience perspective absolutely yeah so whenever you're a your thumb is on the pulse of the zeitgeist. If you get outside of what is the cultural norms of the society that you're that you're editing for, then yeah, you get taken as task. That's so so fascinating that there's something that's uh, ostensibly so trivial as a crossword puzzle, but is so deep <laughs> and so controversial. You know, when things happen and 
of course, we're talking about words and their meanings, and those things are important to folks. So back to the plagiarism story. So this, you started collecting this data, you started collecting the crossword puzzle data, and somebody used your database, which I think is published, you know, open on, on your website, to find out there's a lot of people, or like maybe one person, I, don't, I can't, you can tell the story. Someone's out there just duplicating these crosswords. Yeah. So actually it was me. I collected the data and then I actually posted the data to Reddit and cause I was kind of sick of dealing with it. I just wanted to, I was mostly interested in coming up with a file format and doing archival kind of uh, research, mm -hmm. but then you, know, you post something to Reddit and then nobody picks it up and it's kind of disappointing. And so I was like, fine, I'll just go ahead and look for some stuff, whatever. And then it just ha so happened that the first thing I looked for yielded some results. And then I kept tugging at that string and uh, lo and behold, there was a thing. And like, there is a comment there. There was, there's a bunch of different cases of duplicated crosswords. A lot of them are very interesting, but the one that stood out was Timothy Parker, who was the crossword editor for the USA Today and his own uh, syndicated service, Universal. And um, he had been, it wasn't just that he had stolen, or I'm sorry, plagiarized uh, one puzzle or two. These were hundreds of puzzles and it was so egregious that it, it, it's really remarkable. Actually, if you go to xd.sol.pw, that's where I have the, the, the site and the data for this thing. And there's a, a pretty interesting visualization that I came up with well after the whole scandal was over. But it's it's undeniable when you look at that thing. There's a six-year period where literally hundreds and hundreds of puzzles were um, ganked or gutted or misappropriated. Wow. Um yeah, and, and then there are other puzzles on there too. There's plenty of other instances of, of so-called plagiarism from other authors, but you wouldn't even notice it because of this one guy's malfeasance. Yeah, so there's a 538 feature all about this. It's called A Plagiarism Scandal is Unfolding in the Crossword World, published March 4th, 2016 with Saul's data. I'll link to that in the show notes for those who are interested in diving deep into that. Uh, super interesting. One thing I want to say... I'll give you a little bit more uh, thing on this. One thing I want to say is that this uh, Ollie Reuter um, put the plagiarism spin on the story, and that's the way that the story managed to unfold. Yeah. But it's not strictly clear what plagiarism means in the context of crosswords, right? We all have this kind of notion that you shouldn't do certain things. But from my perspective, if the Library of Congress doesn't even value crossword puzzles as a thing, are they even copyrightable? I've talked with a couple of lawyers and um, they seem to say that well, the whole puzzle is copyrightable, but individual clues aren't and individual pieces aren't. And like, I think copyrights, or, I'm sorry, crosswords are actually kind of like a, a very interesting nexus of copyright and art and all this kind of stuff. It's not clear to me that what Timothy Parker did was anything other than a little bit um, greasy, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> I like that word to describe that. Yeah. Like it's not illegal. It, it's not uh, like maybe it's immoral. I don't know. People, of course, are getting up in arms. They don't want their stuff reused. But he he didn't actually take crosswords from other outlets very often and redo them. He it was from his own outlet that he took and then he republished in the USA Today. Mm. It's changed, right? And so it's like if you if you wrote a short if somebody sold you a short I'm sorry somebody yeah somebody sold you a short story and then you bought it and you published it and then you took that short story and you republished it somewhere else for. Um, you know, changing maybe, I don't know, a third of the story. Is that plagiarism? And I think we probably would say, yes, it is. And there's a term called self-plagiarism where you take something that you wrote and you pass it on to something that you wrote again. And it's this weird kind of gray area for me. Like, it's not as clear cut as Ollie made it out to be. Well, this has been our visit to the seedy underworld of crossword 
creation. <laughs> Let's shift gears a little bit. I'll tell you it's all that, you know, I do a, a little bit of legwork with guests coming on and oftentimes I'll meet somebody and I don't know anything about them. And I will tell you that with you, it's, I feel the opposite. Like you have your website, which we'll link up. Saul.pw has lots of information on it. I know things about you that I don't know about some of my good friends. Like I know at age seven, uh, what you broke your leg or was it your wrist? You broke your wrist. You, you broke your jaw at age 33. You broke your arm at age 36. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, first, my, my first question are, is there a common theme to these injuries? Are you secretly like a evil Knievel style daredevil or why are you breaking all these bones, man? I'm secretly, I'm secretly a klutz who uh, tries things beyond my level of capacity. Okay, well. So in every single instance of those things, I was doing something I probably shouldn't have been doing and then wound up breaking something. Oh, wow. So yeah, <laughs> overconfidence, I think. Is my- welcome, to the, welcome to the club. I've uh, broken things <laughs> myself for reasons similar. Um, I know other stuff. So for, for instance, I know that between the ages of 19 and 21, you spent a lot of your nights and weekends with somebody named Joey. You lived in Urbana, Illinois. Uh-huh. And that's like oh. a completely, to me, a random fact. But to you, like you're just, you put that out there. That's just, I, I selected that fact. But tell everybody how I can find all this stuff about you. I'm not a sleuth. Uh, tell us about your uh-huh. pe- well, you, you, picograph. Yeah, you actually are kind of. A- uh, bio, biograph. What, what's this thing you put on your website? Yeah, it's called a biograph, or at least I call it a biograph. There was a thing that was made maybe uh, 100 years ago uh, called a histomap. And it was, I think it was by Rand McNally. And it was basically, it's a time map. It was over the course of, I don't know, 2,000 years, they mapped the um, the rise and fall of civilizations. And so you can kind of see at a glance, like, here's when the Mongols were, and here's when the Roman Empire was, and here's, you know, literally you can see um, the German, the yeah, the European situation and the German Empire and stuff like that. And I love it as a snapshot. I love things like that that take data and present it in a visual format so you can see at a glance. You don't have to like pour through tomes and tomes of text. You can just see it there, right? Yeah. And I was wondering what that would be like to apply that to my own life. I kind of feel like it's important for for people to have this kind of perspective on their life, right? We're also caught up in the day-to-day experience and what's going on right now. We kind of forget that like, well, wow, 10 years ago I was doing that and 20 years ago I was doing that. And wow, I really did spend a lot of time in college with Joey, who was my girlfriend at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's why that was the case. And, um, and and it's also interesting too. I kind of want to put it out there. It's, you say you're not a sleuth, but, um, most people I think look at something like that. And if you look at the actual biograph that I've got, it's not pretty, like it's kind of a big jarring mess of details information, but there's a lot of, uh, like you're like, you notice a lot of interesting stories that are buried in there. I don't, I feel comfortable sharing what I've shared because there's nothing really damning in there. It's just a little bit of a bunch of little facts. But if you're, looking and you're trying to piece together certain things, you can discover things like that where like I had that um, person that I was really close with in college and we did live together for a year. And um, same thing is true of many other facts and that thing. And so I feel like it's, uh, I don't want to say hidden in plain sight, but you know, anybody who's willing to do the research can find out a lot of interesting details about my life. But like I said, most people aren't. Most people want to actually have me tell a story about that. And I don't, feel the need to tell a story. So I just like to collect the data and put it up. Yeah. Well, it's a cool thing. Uh, I'll I'll describe it real quick visually, and we'll, of course, link to it. Everybody should go check this out. Uh, On the left-hand side is the years, and then if you imagine an XY axis, it's not really an XY axis, but there is a left-hand side, the years going down, 2020 down to 
uh, I guess the, the beginning of time, no, uh, 1976. And then on the beginning of my time, yeah, the beginning of, of Saul's time. And then you have, uh, different categories, residences, flatmates, weekday mornings, weekday afternoons, weekday evenings, weekends, and then like specific events, like years of your life. And then they're just like drawn out where he was, who he was with, what he was up to during that time period. And it's one of these things where you look at it, and I agree, at first it kind of just looks like a mess. Uh, there's almost like a brutalism into the design here, and you're like, what is this thing? <laughs> and then it, it becomes very clear pretty quickly. You're like, oh, wait a minute. There's stories in here, uh, like the different bone breaks, like the different flatmates and the time period, and like the how you were spending your time. And it's it's really a neat thing. So I was just curious, is this easily re reproducible with somebody else's data? Is this like somebody, is there a tool that you use to build this thing? Because I would love to have other people be able to build this for their own life. It'd be cool. Yeah, um, there is a Python tool, a Python, uh, I guess, library, if you will, that we use. It's not that great. You kind of have to write the stuff in Python. I agree. I think it would be great if other people could do this and did do this. I kind of want to make this for each member of my family, for instance. You know, I've seen yeah. my, my dad, um, when he went to school and these various events, especially the ones that happened before I was even born, you know, I've heard about these things, but I, I can't figure out exactly, I can't place them. And especially I can't place them in context with other history. You know, like mm. he says he and my mom got married in whatever year. And it's like, Oh, but that was the year that this happened in, I don't have that kind of context. And so I would love to get that. Yeah. So yeah, um, I would like that. But like I said, the library exists. It's under devotees um, slash biograph, I think it's called. And, um, if you, people can use it, people can look at it. I, we actually have to do some work on that and clean up the example and uh, written, update my own biograph and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, if anybody is interested in helping put together their own, I would love to either advise on it or help clean up the code myself because that's, yeah, I, I think it's actually a very important thing. I'm actually surprised that more people don't do this kind of stuff in general, you know? <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Tidelift, managed open source, backed by maintainers. Save time and reduce risk with a Tidelift subscription. Manage your application's dependencies covering millions of open source projects across JavaScript, Python, Java, PHP, Ruby, .NET, and more. Subscriptions include security updates, licensing verification and indemnification, maintenance and code improvement, package selection and version guidance, roadmap input, and more. The bottom line is this, you get all the capabilities you expect from commercial software, but for all of the key open source software that you're already using and depending on. Tidelift works with GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and more. They support every cloud platform out there. And of course, you can try it absolutely free. Start your free trial today at Tidelift.com. So one more thing I learned on your biograph, this one's more on point, it's VisiData, of course, a big part of your life, so there it is on the biograph, and it seems like most of the work that you did on that, or at least started, was in 27 and 2018 during weekday afternoons, so I'm curious, is, is this a work-related endeavor, or do you have a lot of free time in the afternoons then? Tell us the story of VisiData, how and uh, why you started it. Yeah, so I was at the end of a job. And so it turns out that for some reason, leap years for me are very, I, I get really restive. Something happens every four years and there's just like part of the, 
the cultural moment makes me really uneasy. And hmm. anyway, this happened to be 2016. It happened to be at the, turned out to be the, the end of a job that I was um, at. And I was kind of looking around at my career, which has been about 20 years in software. And I realized I didn't have very much to show for it at all because, you know, you work for a company and you ship code. And most of the code I've actually, you know, so-called shipped has gone nowhere, whether it's because the project was canceled or it's mm. got, you know, wasn't the right thing at the right time or whatever. And even the stuff that I did ship and they did into a product, it's just, you know, it gets absorbed into the board, right? It's not, it's not mine. It goes wherever it goes. And it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's a, it's its own thing, right? That's the industry. And it's disappointing having all this, you know, time and energy and I think things to say in terms of software that um, I didn't have anything to show for it. And I kind of, so it actually turns out that uh, I turned 40 right at the same time. I don't think that's a, it's not an accident that I sort of visited at that exact time. It's a little bit of a midlife crisis, right? Where I'm looking at my career and what's going on there. And I took stock of the various projects that I'd had over the years. And this was one that I had, been, I had actually done at a previous job that I wanted for myself um, going forward. I kind of like the next job, I was like, oh shoot, it'd be really great if I had this thing just to look at some data really quickly. And of course my previous employer owned that code. And so I didn't feel like I could actually, I mean, I couldn't steal it, right? Um, and so I decided, you know, I was gonna rewrite it. I was just gonna do it. I was gonna do it once and for all. And I have this kind of thing that I get into. It's OAFA, once and for all. And I get into that mentality and it's a huge, it's, it's a mistake. It really is not the right way to do things. Where does that come from? So I think it's a, it's a, it's a self-management technique. If I do things just for myself, I do a crappy job. I don't seem to like myself very much. I don't care about my experience. And so I just do the bare minimum. I think most people are kind of in the same boat, right? Mm. And yet it's really nice to have really nice tools, like to be able to feel good about the tools that you're using. It's like, you know, driving a, a janky go-kart that you've made yourself versus a nice Ferrari. And it's not worth it to build a Ferrari just for yourself. It's literally, you know, there's an XKCD comic about this in terms of when should you automate things, right? Um, if it takes you this long to do it every time and you only do it this many times a year, then you can spend this many hours making an automated replacement. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's not worth it to make something like Visited just for my own use case. But if I take the mentality that, no, I'm going to do it for other people. I'm going to do it once and for all. Like this is my gift to the world. Then I'm more motivated to do it well. And then I do do it well. And then I benefit from it too because I get to have that tool and have it be a nice thing. But like I said, it's it's not actually a good trade-off just, just for myself. I need to have somebody else that I'm doing it for, even if that group or person does not never materializes. And um, in the case of Visidata, I mean, it, it is a generally useful tool and people have come up and started using it. And the more people that use it, the more motivated I am to make, make it do more or make it better in whatever sense. Mm. So um, that's how that, how that came about. And also, you know, I know in 2016, there happened to be some other event right around my birthday um, that kind of took its toll emotionally on uh, me and I'm sure many other people. And I decided, to, I think part of this is also channeling that kind of you know, negative energy or fearful energy about the state of the world into something that I can directly control and contribute and make the world a little bit of a better place. So how long was it from conception, I'm going to do this once and for all, with busy data to hmm. user number two. I assume you're user number one. Yep. And so, uh, you know, I conception idea, uh, excitement usually. Then there's the toil. There's the there's the pers perspiration, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one percent inspiration. The ninety nine percent to get from you to two. Yeah. 
How long was it? How much work was it? So I don't actually know um, because I wound up, basically it was only a couple of weeks before I had something that I was willing to show. And I posted that on Reddit again and I got a couple of people to basically complain that I had no unit tests, which is kind of funny. And um, Sounds like Reddit. Right. And uh, then, it was, so it was actually what I was, what I was getting at before was that at the end of this job and this phase of my life, I decided to take a sabbatical. I took a year off very consciously from work. I've done this a couple of times and I, ha I have to say it's one of the best things I I've ever done for myself. It definitely sets you back financially and, you know, puts a, a crack in your career and stuff like that. But personally, I've never had any better times when I've taken these sabbaticals. And um, visited was the focus of this. And I wound up actually going to attending the Recurse Center in New York City for mm. three months. And I would say that that's where I got my, if you will, my second user. And um, it, you know, everybody there is very supportive. It's basically, it's a, it's a retreat, a programming retreat that you go on for three months with these other people uh, who are in the same program, kind of like an unlearning environment or I'm sorry, an unschooling, an unschooling environment. <laughs> unlearning. You forget, you forget. Stuff <laughs> while you're there. And um, so there was somebody there, uh, Moritz, who just picked up the tool and used it for one of the projects he was working on. And I was like, oh my God, thank you. Like I had given a demo of the thing and I was kind of used to like having people go, oh, that's really great. And then of course, just ignoring it because everybody's got it all this crap they were supposed to see and that way it cares to learn about. And mm -hmm. he actually picked it up and used it. And I was very, um, I was kind of touched, I guess. Like, it's like, oh yeah, this actually is useful in this sense. And I kept on working on it there and I got a little more support there. And I think that the, the thing that really um, kicked it off, the, if I, my, my real, you know, first, the first user that I had that wasn't somebody that I knew okay. was when I released um, just after the Recurse Center and it hit the front page of Hacker News and I was like, oh, okay, great. And, you know, people are, people will vote up anything and they'll kind of look at something for three minutes and whatever. But then one particular person really took notice and really started using it and started contacting me. And that was Jeremy Singer Vine. And he's the data editor for BuzzFeed. And he's been using it ever since then. So almost, I'd say almost three years now, he's been using it himself. And he's been a great source of uh, both motivation and inspiration in terms of uh, what kinds of features we want to support, how he uses it. So, you know, he does it a lot for data exploration. You know, if you're, you get a thousand data sets a week, you got to be able to dive into each one of them very, very quickly and bounce around and kind of get the feel for it. And, you know, half the data sets are completely worthless, but you want to find that out as quickly as possible. And Visited mm -hmm. is great for that. In terms of data exploration, you can get anywhere really, really quickly. And then, you know, you may, you do use better or stronger or whatever, more specific tools when you've gotten to that point. But um, for the first 10% of exploration, I don't think there's anything that beats it. So just on the homepage, visydata.org, it shows off some of the things it can do. It's a terminal tool, a visualization tool inside your terminal. And you talked about the duct tape analogy. Right now you have as the tagline data science without the drudgery. Mm -hmm. And the way you present this is pretty interesting, I think. So you mentioned it as duct tape or kind of glue, stringing data in, getting something out. And you have this double select. So on the left-hand side, when you have a blank, but you need a blank. And on, on the first one, it's like, the typical data formats that we all know and love slash hate in many cases, you know, CSV, JSON, HTML. I mean, there's lots of formats supported. You can throw a SQLite database at it. Uh, if you still got some Excel 97 files laying around, VisiData can handle that. And then on the right-hand side, you have kind of the outputs that are possible, uh, which I think probably most of them use it in terms of data exploration and really the, the kind of data science-y uh, sleuthing that you're talking about, probably they use the terminal interface, but you can also output 
you know, you can clean up text, you can output, you know, plain text, JSON, these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, has this been a feature set that you just built up over time? Or did you have like a first use case where it's like CSVN and terminal interface out? What was your initial concept mm. of what this thing should do? Wow, yeah, that's a big question. Um, so I was calling it a shitty CSV viewer, sorry, crappy CSV viewer for a long time. Um, and part of that's just, you know, some kind of false humility, but also I kind of wanted to keep it a small project, right? Like, you know, get in, get out and have it be a three month thing. But, um, in actuality, the thing that really drew me to the project in the first place was the flexibility, the kind of almost the universality of the interface. And that's part of the both blessing and the curse of it, right? Because of the structure. So one of the, one of the central theses, I guess, of Visitata is that, um, everything is data, including metadata and internal data and et cetera. And so one of the things that you can do with Visitata, for instance, is you can go to a, a list of the columns of the current sheet as a sheet itself, and you can modify the columns on that sheet. You can edit the names, change the widths, you can change the types. Basically, you interact with columns just like their own sheet. I don't, I don't know of any other tool that treats stuff like that. I mean, imagine mm. if you had 100 columns in Excel and you could pop open an Excel spreadsheet of those columns and have that stuff reflected back to the columns themselves on the original sheet. And that was one of the original features in the uh, tool when I had made it at F5 in the first place. And I kind of, it was a little bit of a throwaway feature there. I was like, oh, this is neat. Okay, hey. But then as I got to making it here on, um, again, this time, I just kept finding more and more uses for it. And it's just the internal structure is so that it's really easy to add new loaders. And so, you know, you add a CSV loader, you add a JSON loader. Because of Python is so, has such a rich ecosystem, you can go ahead and add an Excel loader and it's just importing this third-party um, library and just using it. And like, they're really actually small things. And so, yeah, it's, it's increased and, and added over time. But really, every one of those things is, you know, a handful of lines of code. And because it fits in with the, the structure of Visitata internally, and um, so in some sense, like I, I kind of am a little bit, I don't want to say frustrated, but there's all kinds of great data tools out there, but they're usually very format specific, right? You have the CSV viewer, you have this JSON editor or whatever, and there's no need for that to be the case, right? I think mm-hmm. any tool that does data should be able to take data from many different formats and sources. Obviously you need like a, an ecosystem like Python to make that easy to do as a developer, but right. um, it's it's all possible, and especially in this day and age when there's so much code out there in the first place to do all this kind of stuff. And the one thing led to another, I don't know, I, I kind of just want to tout like that year that I was on that sabbatical, I was working on it during the weekdays and I was um, being uh, kind of obsessive about it. There was the time that I was like, you know what, I want to make a Git interface with Visidata. And it's so neat to be able to open up a Git history in Visidata and be able to do like a frequency analysis of, for instance, a contributor and see instantly who's got the most contributions and then dive into their contributions. And I think there's actually still a lot of room for something like a Git interface where you could, again, go ahead and edit, bulk edit uh, Git commits and have it automatically rebase everything for you. So you're kind of like curating your Git history in a tabular format. Mm -hmm. Like the more that I work with it and see it, the more I think that everything really is data. I mean, of course that's the case. And if you treat things like that and put everything into a tabular format, you've got instant, the organization really just makes everything instantly more powerful. That does sound intriguing. And then the other thing that really uh, 
was awesome was that no uh, October I think I um, was inspired by Drawill, which is a terminal drawing library that works with Braille characters, so you can get like hmm. eight times the the resolution. And I decided to just cram that into Visited. And so Visited has a graphing functionality. Everything's a scatter plot, but you can do a lot of work with scatter plots and you can do it all in the terminal and you can zoom in and zoom out and select areas. And it's like, I, I was kind of personally myself also very surprised I was able to pull this off and make it work as well as it does. So I kind of like went nuts that year basically and um, <laughs> Visited was where I went nuts on. That's awesome. So it's 2020. We're four years later. It's a leap year. Mm -hmm. Sure is. <laughs> and so you're coming up on your you're coming up on your four year uh, reset. Uh huh. You got Visi Data 2.0 coming out. Happens to also be an election year, but sure, surely unrelated. What's uh, surely aren't yep. What's going on now? You got 2.0 on on the rise. Tell us what's is this project? Obviously, you're not done with it because you're coming out with a new version. So, are you looking to continue this into the future? Well, so this is actually very interesting. Um, I want to get a 2.0 out because I want to have a stable platform for people to develop their own plugins or apps or extensions for Visited, their own loaders, for instance, right? To have it be a platform that people can contribute to the whole everything is data concept. And that doesn't happen unless you have a stable platform. And I don't feel like the API, it was, it was kind of um, a little, it's a little all over the place. Like I want it to be more consistent and documented and all that kind of stuff. And I have to admit that, I mean, we've been talking about 2.0 for months and months, if not a year at this point. And the thing that's holding up 2.0 actually is Semver. Mm. And I wanted to make this point because I feel this deep in my bones where I want to commit to a stable API and I'm not there yet. I don't think Visited is there yet. I think there are things I definitely want to change. And so I don't feel comfortable releasing it because according to Semver, once you make a major version, you're stuck with that interface, right? right. And I'm not comfortable with this as it is. I, I feel like I have to go through this whole process of uh, both, you know, uh, auditing the code or kind of combing through it and finding the bits that I don't like and changing the interface and then documenting the interface. And so I've been kind of saying, well, you know what, let's call it 2.0 because it actually is, there have been some radical changes to it. We've added a lot of cool features like undo and um, a lot of, I can't even go over the thing. It's been so long since I've been on this, since the last real, you know, re quote, real release. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I, we probably could release very soon if we were, if I wasn't concerned about the API, but because of the whole Simber mentality and knowing that in the, aside from just me saying we're not Simber, the second that I say we're not Simber, you get, you attract a whole lot of uh, kind of, ire, the ire of the open source community. It's like, you should be Semver. And it's like, I don't know if Semver actually is the right thing in general. I'm kind of like kind of coming away from that myself. I think mm -hmm. that it's actually very difficult to um, maintain APIs that are completely backwards compatible and you wind up making mistakes, right? You wind up making a change that seems like it's backward compatible and it turns out it's not. And if you didn't bump the version then, are you supposed to then make a new release and bump it when you discover it? Right. So what you end up doing is bumping major versions way more often, right? Right. As a result of that, which turn, which is negative. I mean, some people don't like that. And it's like, well, right. Is VisiData used as a dependency very often or is it more of a, a command line tool that you use as like a final application? It seems more like the latter, but maybe there's people that are embedding it or something. Well, most people I think are using it like that. I think yeah. the thing I want to do is I want to encourage people to use it as that. I think it's happening more and more. There's a plugin uh, architecture now and actually there are some people who are making plugins for their own things. I really want to encourage that because, you know, we get feature requests all the time on the Visidata uh, GitHub issues list. And as much as I like a lot of the feature ideas, I don't have the time to implement that kind of stuff. 
Right. Um, even if I didn't have a job, there's still other directions I would want to take it. And so, but I want to encourage people to do their own thing and to experiment and to be feel free to ship code outside of the visitator release cycle. Not only that, I don't want to own someone else's code. You know, someone else makes a feature for Visitator. I feel very uncomfortable taking it into Visitator if I don't fully understand right, it. Right, because you got to maintain it, right? They write it once and you exactly. maintain it forever. Exactly. So they, they lob it in and it's kind of like, and I don't want to say no to this, um, you know, great feature. And yet the more, the more experience I have in the software world, the more it's like, wow, that's um, going to take effort on my part. And I don't know how long, I mean, I'm definitely going to be maintaining Visitator for a long time, but I really kind of hope at some point maybe even in the near future that I can kind of set it aside and let it run itself because I have other things I want to work on, right? Yeah. And so I think part of that is having a viable plugin architecture and ecosystem so that people can contribute. But then in order to have that, you need to have a stable platform with a document and right. API and everything being stable. Right. If it wasn't for the plugin architecture, I could say, well, just throw Semver out. You're a tool. People can just use the tool at whatever version they grab it at and they can just update. There's not really much of a reason to have Semver for like a, an application that you use. But if you want to have a platform that people are building plugins for, and you, you do have to make some uh, decisions and some guarantees around APIs for them to feel comfortable doing that. Cause I've definitely built plugins for unstable APIs and I don't, I don't make that mistake anymore. Right. Yep. Um, when the ground gets swept out from under you fool me once, shame on me, but, uh, I'm not going to do that anymore. So I understand <laughs> your, your reticence to bump that. Um, and I, I will say, uh, I wanted to talk about the feature requests that we get from Visidata. And you mentioned you're interested in the process behind open source software development. For right? sure. Yeah. And um, I don't like having a huge amount of open issues on my the project board because it just, I don't know, having 400 open issues just feels both unwieldy on my end and also I feel like it looks bad from people yeah. who are coming by and think it might be like a buggy thing, even though even if 390 of them are, are feature requests. And so we've actually um, come up with a policy that we use, I, I kind of like it, which is to market with a, as a wish list item in brackets in the title and then close it. I basically uh, make a comment saying, this sounds great. I hope somebody can implement it. If it's you or anybody else, I'd love to help, whatever. Uh, closing as per wishlist policy. And our policy is just, we have like a Marie Kondo, keep things nice and neat on the issues board uh, mentality about it. And I hope that doesn't uh, turn anybody off, but I think it's really nice that we have, I think like 20 open issues right now, almost all of which are something that I think we probably actually should fix before we ship. Mm -hmm. Or if we don't, we actually actively want help on as opposed to having, you know, he has hundreds of feature requests that would be nice to have, but I can't put any time into right now. Right. So how do you surface those wish lists in terms of somebody else coming to the project, you know, dupes and whatnot? So say I want a feature, mm -hmm. wish lists, having them closed, they're not visible to me. I'm probably not going to search closed issues. I'll, I'll look through the open issues and see if somebody else has requested this. But do you have people ever wondering for the same feature or, by the way, this has already been closed? Mm -hmm. Is there a way of surfacing those wish list items to say, like, here's what people want? Maybe they can thumbs up it or something, even though it's a closed item. Yeah, um, I mean, people can search for closed items. I think people do search through the issues as a whole more often than you might think. Like maybe not for a wishlist item, but in general, they, they maybe this is also how Visitator is, uh, you know, it has a, so many features. People are like, I couldn't possibly know all the things that it does. And so then they wind up searching for, through the issues for how do I do this thing? And only when they discover that it's not there at all do they file a feature request for it. And so I feel like um, in that initial search, where they're like, how do I do this one thing? Then they find hopefully the wishlist item where it does happen uh, or has been already suggested. And then submit it. Also, there's been a pretty active uh, community around Visitata. People will file 
issues and then somebody will chime in and say, uh, oh yeah, this is over here or I'm working on this or whatever. And so I, there's a little bit of yeah community interaction. And I wanted to thank AJ. I, uh, I think I know the AJ that you're talking about who recommended me um, for this show. Okay. And he's been exactly one of those people who's been active in the project and just even just as a voice for um, to talk to new people who come on who want to say who are filing bugs, whatever, even just to have somebody who uh, responds quickly, I think is a really good practice. And so somebody will say, hey, I want this feature. And somebody else will say, oh, yeah, we don't do that kind of thing. Or here's where you can look and how you do it yourself or great idea. Uh, wish list close. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's awesome. So on the about page, you do have a list of contributors. I do see AJ on there now as well as is it Anya? Is that how you pronounce that name? It seems like uh -huh. a major contributor. Yeah, Anya's been a great help. I met her at the Recurse Center and she's been fantastic. Awesome. And then you also have a bunch uh, patrons. So you said this was your gift to the world. That being said, people can throw up their, as you call it, cold hard cash uh, <laughs> via Patreon. Curious how that has gone, uh, the idea for Patreon, if you like the platform, and then if you've had any patrons along the way. Mm -hmm. So you got uh, maybe two dozen or so listed here who've helped support the project, you know, non-code contributions, but maybe financial contributions. Yeah. I want to, first of all, I want to give a, a Big thanks to Christian Warden and October Swimmer, which is his Salesforce consultancy. He's our corporate sponsor. He's the, the top uh, contributor to the part my Patreon. And the reason I started a Patreon was because originally I had a tiny letter where I would uh, be sending out content every week or however often I could do it. And I found that I didn't get any engagement. Like I sent things out to people and then you can ask up and down all day long, you know, do you have it? We filled this feature. How about this question? Whatever. And I got almost nothing. And um, I felt like it was a lot of effort on my part to put together those things and I didn't get any reward for it. And so with Patreon, it's like, well, here's a very low effort way. It's like I can collect kind of an audience and people can contribute to whatever level they feel comfortable with. And, you know, I have to say that it, I want to address the asymmetry in uh, open source software development where, yeah, it's, this is my you know so-called passion project, right? Where I put my heart and soul into it. But it's not, again, it's not worth it for me. I want people to, um, I want people to contribute. I want people to, pr to promote it, to add code, to... When you say it's not worth it for you, you mean that the work you put in isn't, would not be worth that effort if you were the only one using it. Yes. Right? Exactly. But it is worth it. Like, it's your passion project. It is worth it to you to do this, but not if you were the only user. That's what you're trying to say. Yes, exactly. Sorry. Yes. Um, okay. Just making sure I'm hearing you correctly. Yes. Um, the only thing that I get out of Visadata is looking at the usage numbers. I have a way of figuring out how many people are using Visadata in general. And it's, um, I look at that chart and I'm like, oh, I, I feel like warm and fuzzy when I see that, that number going up, right? Yeah. Uh, which is, again, the classic ego, <laughs> ego mentality. But... Well, it's, it's your impact. I mean, it's just showing you helping others. There's, there's some ego there, but there's also some altruism there. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that if I was only, if there's only 10 people who are using it on a, on a regular basis, I'd probably be like, okay, well, that's great, but I'll move on to something else. But, you know, seeing that number grow and grow and grow makes me more it's motivating, uh, motivated and, and having people being willing to put down cold, hard cash, even if it's just a couple of bucks is meaningful. It's like, no, it's really hard to get people to even put a couple of bucks towards something. It is. And so I, I'm so much more willing to work on something. If someone subscribed to my Patreon, if they have an idea, and it, like I said, it's not that they're paying me to do it. Like, it's not worth it for me to get $3 to do whatever feature that takes me four hours. But just the mere fact that they're, you know, invested in any way is motivating. 
And so that's the reason behind the um, Patreon being a Patreon thing. And I don't actually, I actually, I don't take money out of it as an income for myself. Like I have a full-time job and so I don't really need that money in a certain sense. But what I do with that money is I run other experiments. So for instance, this last winter I was working, there's a guy called, um, his name is Tom Buckley Houston. And if I hope I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, right? Hopefully Tom. Anyway, um, I wanted to see if I could get Visadata on the web. And so he's, uh, he makes brow dot, uh, is brow.sh, browse, he calls it, which is a text interface to the browser. You can basically run a full browser in your terminal <laughs> and you can do things like play YouTube videos through it. Like it's nice. It's I can't have seen totally that. It looks, great. it is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Mind blowing. And so he's my kind of nuts. And, um, <laughs> so I, I contacted him and, uh, wanted to hire him just for a little bit to see if we could get like a version of visited on, on the web. And he whipped something up and we actually used uh, GoTTY and we kind of got something working. And I, I didn't wind up actually publishing it or pushing it out because there's, you know, I know that I might be inviting a stampede and it's kind of a big hassle to get the ability to scale things and make it be viable. But as far as just having a very simple interface to a server that's running visited, we totally, he totally pulled it off. And so I, I use the money that I get from Patreon to support stuff like that. Those kind of, um, those kind of things, those little experiments that like, you know, it's not worth it for me to spend a few thousand dollars to do something like that. But right. if it's essentially, you know, quote, free money, then well, sure, let's play around and see how this goes. Plus, it's investing it back into the project, which I'm sure your patrons would. I mean, they want to support you, but they want to support Visidata. And so it's like this is like directly supporting that, whether it's putting food on your table or putting research and development into the tool itself. I think they're happy probably either way. So I think it's a great use of those resources, especially if you don't personally need them to live your life. Yeah, it's a good point. Very cool. Well, Visi uh, Data, awesome project. Definitely has piqued my interest. Thanks again to AJ for recommending it and for being a, a key part of Saul's community around this. If you're interested, of course, all the links to all the things are in the show notes right where they belong. Saul, thanks so much for coming on Maintaining Spotlight. Thanks for uh, putting this project out there and all the cool stuff you're doing on your website. Any final words to the hackers out there, the open source community regarding busy data or what you're up to? Uh, what would be your call to action? Like if somebody is listening and they're like, Saul seems cool, his project seems cool, what would you want them to do? Give it a try, hop on your Patreon, hop onto your GitHub issues. What's the best way somebody can get involved with busy data? I would say that the things that um, are most meaningful to me are to give it a try, to so install it, play around with it for, I'd say, an hour. It seems like if people can play around with it for an hour, then um, they either get it or they don't. If they get it, they're kind of hooked. And um, then to say it out loud, say it in public on Twitter or whatever, and say why you like it and what has been mind-blowing for you. I feel like that's the one piece that I haven't been able to get and it's hard for me to say it myself you know i obviously i think it's sure. great but the more that i say it's great the more people are like hey, yeah sure he loves his own baby whatever <laughs> um so yeah so if you do like it then uh say it out loud and <laughs> say it loud say it proud there you go and uh yeah um otherwise the other one other thing that i am looking for i think that there's a uh a gap in visitators packaging in terms of windows um, releases like we have it for wind uh, for Linux and for Mac it comes as part of the Python installation stuff but 
you can run it on Windows using, for instance, a Windows subsystem for Linux, but it's a little bit of a pain to install. And so that turns a lot of people off. And of course, a lot of people are running Windows. Mm -hmm. So if there's anybody out there who has experience with making a Windows release, like an actual package for Windows, especially from a Python project, and especially for a Python terminal project, I would love to talk with them. We, we really need a, could use a Windows release manager. I think it would really increase adoption and uh, usage of visitors. Very good. Well, Saul, I've had a blast chatting with you. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and uh, thanks for all the open source work you do. Thank you very much for having me. It's very nice meeting you. All right. Comment at us on changelog.com. Are you going to take Busy Data for a test drive? Interested in starting an open source project around biographs? Have more questions for Saul about the CD underworld of crossword creators? Here's what to do. Pop open your show notes, click the Discuss This on Changelog News link, and let your voice be heard. It's super easy and totally free. Thanks again to TyLift, our partners on this Maintainer Spotlight series. TyLift is managed open source, backed by maintainers. And hey, they have a new webinar right now. Best practices for open source app development in a downturn. This isn't a downturn, is it? Yeah, this is a downturn. Learn more at TyLift.com. Our beats are farm fresh and we get them from Breakmaster Cylinder. And we're brought to you by amazing people at companies who get it. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. On the next episode, we have GitHub's CTO, Jason Warner. I don't want to say too much, but trust me, you want to listen to that one. Subscribe if you haven't at changelog.com slash podcast or search for the changelog in your favorite podcast app. You'll find us. That's all for now. We'll talk to you again next time.